Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We expect that we know what our children's gender is. Even if at birth we don't know it, that we would know it by the time they're three or four years old. Not being allowed to fully feel your grief actually just delays the process of you getting to acceptance. Gender being such a fundamental thing about ourselves made me really question my identity as a mother. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. We're here already at the finale for Series 2 of the Elevate podcast. And this final episode is definitely one that will touch you in the deepest part of your core. So settle in and prepare yourselves to be informed and enlightened through the story and journey of my guest, who is a hardworking pediatrician, but even more extraordinarily than that, a deeply courageous and inspiring mother of three. Working and living in Los Angeles, my guest today is a keen marathon runner, an avid yoga practitioner, a fun-loving mother and doctor who has learned over the years how best to strike a balance of fitting in and being true to herself. Her own self-realization on the trying effort to prove herself in America after emigrating there with her family as a young girl from Iran came only during her deeply touching journey as a mother of a young teen who struggled with gender identity. Being a physician, looking after other young children for many years, Already very well equipped, or at least she thought she was, to understand the needs of young folks. Her life and work took a turn upon the realization that perhaps she was not as equipped as she thought to help her own teenager navigate all the overwhelming concerns around transition. When her daughter came out in 2017, my guest found there were not many examples in the media of stories of trans people who come out after starting puberty without having traditional signs of being transgender in childhood. Everything she read or saw was about kids who either expressed their true gender as early as age four or five, or said that they were aware of it that early, but did not act on it and suppressed it instead. The book that she needed to read, A Parent's Journey, when their child presents later, was not available. She recalled a Toni Morrison quote, If there is a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And that is exactly what she did. My guest has taken her family's story and shared it so tremendously in her recent memoir, Found in Transition, a mother's evolution during her child's gender change, which outlines the difficulties and various stages of the journey for her as a mother. It is the most compelling and relatable book for any parent of all ages. 
but specifically draws attention to the obstacles both she as a mother and her daughter Ava faced both intrinsically and extrinsically. Feeling lost when her daughter came out and working on ways to find herself again during her daughter's transition led her to ask very important and meaningful questions of herself. Drawing on her insecurities from her own past and working out how she could find some way to get away from the expectations of who everyone else thought she should be. She says, having a trans child has made me open my mind and heart beyond what I could have ever imagined possible. It has taught me what being a mother truly means. I have a new sense of purpose and passion and have become involved with a community of other parents with trans children that I would not otherwise have ever met. Today, she is not only a busy mother and a doctor, but also a transgender rights activist. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, and Women's Running Magazine. I am so immensely touched and very grateful to be welcoming Paria Hasuri to the Elevate podcast today. Thank you so much, Paria, for being here and sharing your beautiful story with us. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm so pleased. You joined me from Los Angeles and I'm hoping, first of all, the first question I should be asking is, I hope you and your family are doing okay in this surreal time that we're all having. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we're all healthy and, and busy and I have a job to go to, um, but it's obviously taking its toll on us like many other families. The social isolation has been very difficult, particularly for my um, teenagers, but even for myself, pre pretty difficult. But but we are doing we are doing well and we're healthy and um, hoping that things will slowly and steadily get better. It's funny sitting in a different part of the world, but being able to have the same common issues, you know, it feels somehow that we're all connected and part of this bigger problem in, in a way that none of us have ever probably been connected before. So yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, so I wonder if it would be okay to start with how your book reveals the journey you've just had over the last few years. You were away with your husband and it was a phone call that you got while you were in Thailand, which brought to light the huge scare around your daughter self-harming, which understandably shook you as a family and is the sort of defining moment that turned your life as you knew it in a different direction. Completely terrifying for you all. And I know it must be hard to think about it and relive it now. Are you able and comfortable enough to explain this monumental event for others? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so my husband and I were on vacation uh, thousands of miles away from home and, and my parents were staying with my three kids and my middle child at that point was 13 and a half and we had never ever suspected that she may have any issue with gender dysphoria or gender identity whatsoever and you know we got a call from her uh, school that she had told a teacher that she uh, believes that she is possibly transgender and that she's a girl and 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 not a boy and that she didn't know how to tell us and the thought of um, telling us was so hard for her that it was causing her to self harm and and so they you know reached out and uh, and it's interesting to me why she chose when we were thousands and thousands of miles away to tell a teacher but 
and I've never really asked her that question, but I think maybe there was a sense of safety in us being thousands of miles away that um, that she chose that time to, to tell a teacher. And, um, you know, we were, the truth is that I wasn't initially uh, shocked or upset that she's transgender because I just didn't think that she was transgender. I thought that, you know, that's just a mistake. You know, she's not transgender, but I was upset that she was self-harming and that was what I was upset about initially because I just thought the possibility of her being trans is almost zero, you know, if not zero at that time. Um, and I'm going to get on to the kind of realization of that in a second when we go through the interview a little bit later. But three words that are very dear to you, sweat, tears, and see. Would you kindly tell me why they're so important and how they helped you when you felt challenged? So sweat, tears, see comes from one of my favorite quotes, which is the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or see. And you know, for me, I have always turned to, uh, well, not always, I should say in the last 10 years, I started running and becoming a runner really became like meditative and therapy for me. Um, and I, I ran my first marathon when I was 42. And I think when I ran that, you know, I never thought I could I couldn't run a mile when I started running. So I thought that running a marathon is just impossible for me. And so I think when I did run a marathon and then I ran a few more after that, you know, I just felt like if I could do that, I can do anything. I can get through anything. Um, and so the sweat part, you know, it comes from the running. Um, the C part is because I've always just feel a sense of calm um, when I, if I just sit and watch a body of water and, and preferably the ocean, but I can even just sit and stare at water in a pool and, and, and feel calm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, it's so true. Yeah. And then so sweat tears and uh, see, and yeah, the tears is just, I've always I've always been a crier and somebody who actually appreciates a good cry and doesn't think that crying is a bad thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I think in so many ways, honestly, we're kindred spirits. Um, I'm exactly the same. I, I need to look at water and tears. It's just such a great, even when I laugh, sometimes I laugh so hard that I cry um, and people think something's wrong. But, you know, I think it is a really healthy Thing and I encourage people to try crying. It's not a bad thing at all. <laughs> yeah. So when I was going kind of through this with my uh, with my daughter, I decided to get the word sweat tears um, see tattooed inside my wrist because then it was just sort of, you know, anytime I felt overwhelmed, I felt like I could look at it and know that I kind of had the tools to get myself through anything. Wow. Amazing. So touching. Uh, you come from an Iranian background, as I said in the introduction, which is a culture not too similar to the one I grew up, which is Indian. Listening to your own transformation from being a young girl growing up in America mirrored a lot of my own experiences. I grew up in Canada, but it seems to have held serious ground on what you wanted for your own family, for your own children. And I wondered if you could share a bit more of that and how this journey with your daughter brought that to light for you. Yeah. So, you know, my family um, immigrated to the U.S. in 1983, and that was probably um, 
one of the worst times to be an Iranian and American. It was in America. It was shortly after the Iran hostage crisis. And we ended up initially in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, later in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I was really, I think I was the only brown kid in Madison that, that I remember. And other than my cousin who went, you know, went to that school and then um, in Pittsburgh, Maybe there were a couple of brown, you know, kids or one black kid. You know, I don't really. Um, so I always and I was bullied in the fifth grade when we came. And so, you know, I think when you've been bullied and always felt like you are on the outside, you sort of the last thing you want for you, one of your kids to be, you know, on the outside. So when she came out, I had so much fear and worry uh, that she was going to sort of spend her life being an outsider, which was, you know, not something that obviously any parent wants for their child. Um, and I think it was just really my own past insecurity, uh, my own experiences um, that made me then sort of transmit all that uh, fear onto her um, and worry about her future onto her. So, um, you know, fortunately she actually um, ended up not having, you know, she, she, when she came out, she actually um, was supported by a, a lot of people and um, did make a lot of friends and, you know, I um, really has had a good experience. And so um, I shouldn't have, put all my, you know, fear onto her. Life doesn't always go exactly to plan. And you are a planner. It's an important lesson and a tough one to learn. And you really did sort of have your future mapped out for yourself, didn't mm -hmm. you? And I can completely relate to this. I had sort of done a similar thing. And I don't know if that comes from our cultural backgrounds, conditions to feel that you finish school at a certain age, university at a certain age, you get married at a certain age, you have children. I don't know. It, it, it And it sort of goes through osmosis or something. But you are conditioned to think that this is how life might turn out or should be for you. And then you, of course, watch a lot of rom-coms and you're sure that that is all yeah. that was going to happen yes. for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, at least for me, that was definitely yeah. the plan. Le learning to let go and control events is such a huge part of the lessons. The idea of resilience, teaching my girls and when I work with them about not being afraid to fall, but learning how to get up from the fall is a message that I'm so compelled to instill within the young children I work with. But your daughter, I was struck with how much she seems to have illustrated this right from quite a young age. Where do you think her resilience came from? You know, that's a really good question. I, I'm i not really sure how she ended up being so... Uh, so strong and sure and secure in who she is. Um, you know, a lot of uh, transitioning while in high school is really the most difficult time, you know, to, to, there's uh, so much going on. But I think that for her, once she knew this about herself, um, trying to continue living as if she's a boy was just not an option. Did you find that she sort of drew some inspiration from others around her or not really? It was kind of something that she just innately presented with. Yeah, it's, it's possible. You know, my we did not have in our community any trans or gender diverse people. Uh, 
my we have my husband and I do have a lot of gay friends and so she and um some family members as well and so you know she was definitely there were you know gay couples in our home all the time that were good friends of ours and 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 that she would see but um but we didn't have anybody trans in our community which which is a totally different thing but i think certainly she saw that that was not a big deal for us at all and that we were very accepting of of that and so maybe i think she thought well they're very accepting of gay people um you know maybe trans won't be that much of a stretch for them even though it's something really different we also you know i would routinely have conversations with my children um saying that they could tell me anything and that there's nothing they they can't tell me and um and uh, of course sadly when she did tell me the big secret she had to tell me i didn't have a po positive reaction but i think she also knew in her heart uh, that we would eventually if not accept it you know right away that we would eventually come to terms with whatever she had to tell us yeah that must have been such an emotional you know few few months in your in your life i you you touched on this area that you know she understood that being gay was okay and i think in your book you also refer to the fact that you were okay with her being gay and that's what you assumed was really the core of her concern and you were okay with that, but it was when she told you it wasn't that, you said that you had a reaction that wasn't what she probably hoped to hear. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we expect being gay is not about, it's not the same degree of, you know, identity as, as gender. You know, we expect that we may not know what our children's sexuality is until around puberty time. So, you you know, I think, but we expect that we know what our children's gender is. Um, that even if at birth we don't know it, that we would know it by the time they're three or four years old. And so I think feeling like I had no idea that my child is transgender um, and gender being such a fundamental thing about ourselves made me really question my identity as a mother, you know, and I think I've always, um, you know, motherhood has always been sort of the biggest part of my identity. You know, anytime I put my bio out anywhere, I say I'm the mother of three and a pediatrician and, you know, like mother is always, first as far as i'm concerned in terms of how i see myself and define myself and so so then to think that wow i didn't know something so fundamental about my child um really made me question myself as well so i think that was a big part of it and i think we don't we don't learn and we don't know that you know gender doesn't always present itself at you know, three or four years old. Yeah, it's such an important message to get out there, isn't it? Because it, I was completely uninformed until I read your book as well. And I think there's a lot of things I keep telling myself as I'm going through this journey of, of mentoring young girls, which is I need to unlearn things 
that I thought I knew in order to learn to teach things going forward, you know, and I think that's an important uh, lesson for so many adults. You know, we have been conditioned to think things that are not necessarily the truth and re really accepting those is hard. I do relate to this idea of, of being a mum and then feeling you as a mum, the person that brought this child into the world, doesn't really understand your child. You know, that, that's, that's got to be a tough pill to swallow. Um, but, you know, your bravery is amazing. And I, I, I'm really grateful that you carried on, you know, talking to Ava about her, her feelings. Grief and acceptance were two major themes that I was brought back to many times within your memoir. And personally, one that I've had multiple encounters with. It comes in waves and in cycles, and it's not something you can put into neat little boxes as maybe we'd like to, because you don't know when you'll be consumed by these emotions. And I know that you talk a lot about, you know, losing a child that you initially brought into the world in some thought processes, at least that's what you went through, before accepting the one that was in front of you. And I wondered if you could talk us through or other parents through what kind of ways you use to cope around this. Are there things that you would recommend in terms of coping strategies for parents that are at a sense of loss? Because that's really what it is, isn't it? There's loss here. Yeah. Well, I think... One thing about grief is, and in my experience talking to other, you know, parents of trans kids as well, um, which I've talked to hundreds now at this point, is that, you know, I, as parents of trans kids, we are often um, made to feel guilty about our grief. Um, like, you know, you didn't lose anything. Like, this is the same kid you've always had. And we are often made to feel guilty and a little bit of a sense of shame over the guilt that we have. And I think not being allowed to fully feel your grief actually just delays the process of you, you know, getting to acceptance. So I think, you know, you're entitled to the grief that you feel. Yes, you, you, it's true. You didn't lose a child. It is the same child. It's just that their gender is not what you thought. But you are grieving something. You're grieving an, an idea, an image you had in your head. Um, you're grieving because you're worried about your child's future. You know there. And so one thing would be okay. Let yourself feel what you're feeling so that you can then move through it. I think for me, the most important thing. Um, what helped me the most was joining a support group of um, families, uh, other families that have transgender kids, um, so that I felt like I had a community of people who really understood exactly what I was feeling and what I was going through, because it's just not something you can explain to somebody else, you know, until you're going through it, you don't know what you're feeling. So I think... Um, surrounding yourself with a community of people really helps. And, and what helped about that community was not just that uh, they understood what I was saying, but that many of them had moved through and had these children who were thriving and in college and with jobs and, and doing great. Um, and so then it would then I would see that, you know, there is actually hope that my daughter is going to have a full life, you know, because part of my grief is, you know, worry that she's not going to have a full life because she's she's trans. And so then, you know, through them, I meet these other 
uh, teens and young adults who have very full lives um, and whose parents have walked through this with them. And, um, and that was really encouraging. And, and, and I think also just um, therapy obviously helps for everything because, um, and I didn't go to therapy while this was happening and I really, really wish I had. And I ended up actually going to therapy after I had already turned in my book and everything. And, um, and therapy was the, when I did finally go was sort of the final touch of me getting to verbalize some things that I was even afraid to admit and acknowledge to myself. Um, and, and that really helped and, and, and running for me has always been a form of therapy too. So. Yeah, it's admirable how much you'd run. I mean, I honestly can't run to the end of the street without <laughs> looking like a complete, you know, um, my lungs are kind of out there. But yeah, I, I, when I look at other runners and I sort of draw inspiration from your signing up for marathons and things, it must have really, I did turn to yoga myself, actually, for breath work, because I found myself feeling really anxious at times when I felt that I was losing this child in my own personal life with my son. I, and I, I remember the therapist telling me the same thing, that for the minute that you found out you were pregnant, you started imagining a life for this baby. You know, you really already, for so even if you got your diagnosis for your child or whatever that happened to your child, that what you thought for the nine months that that child was brewing, every day you were planting another chapter in that child's life, you know, and that that grief is something that is real, you know, don't dismiss it. And I think like you, my support system being of Asian background was very much like, well, nobody died. Relax. It's okay. And I, and, you know, and I said, I know, I, of course I know that. But there was a part of me that really struggled, really struggled to understand how to deal with my own son's issues, which were nothing compared to transitioning, but um, he, they were a little bit different. They, he had autism, but I spent my life trying to, for the first few years of his journey, trying to fix fix it. You know, I could fix this, you know, rather than accepting the child in front of me and dealing with the issues that he was having in front of me. I kept trying to portray the things that I'd imagined for him that was going to happen because I'd spent these few months, in, you know, doing that. So, so thank you. And it forces you to just be in the present yeah. and parent the child in front of you day by day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for planners, yes. <laughs> that's a, that's a lesson that we really need. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the control things that we've got to let go of. It's important. Yeah. You mentioned um, also that there's a lot of concern around transitioning and it being a phase. And I'm going to put the word phase in quotes. Um, something that I think so many parents will want to hear more on. It's it natural for parents to question the validity of their child's thoughts what I mean to say is that it's not uncommon for kids, especially in their teen years, to experiment. And perhaps it's not out of the realm of actual possibility that curiosity is what leads them down a path, but it's not maybe a genuine worry or concern. How can you help parents navigate this really tender line? Yeah. So I think when it comes to gender in particular, there are a lot of teens who are curious about gender and who are exploring their gender. And there's a big difference between um, curiosity and gender exploration and true gender dysphoria and gender identity issues. So somebody who's curious and exploring gender may want to change their hairstyle, change their dress, possibly even experiment you know, with, with pronouns. And usually, 
um, just that sort of satisfies them and and makes them you know feel comfortable um, and that is very different than somebody who's having uh, dysphoria uh, and true gender identity issues you know transitioning and particularly medical transitioning is not simple um, it involves many doctor's appointments many blood tests many different you know um, sort of it's a daily you know active um, uh, uh, you know work that you need to do it and so somebody who is just sort of exploring their um, gender um, and doesn't have to true gender dysphoria or gender identity is not going to want to medically transition They're They're not going to, you know, go through with that. So there really is a difference and there's nothing wrong with somebody with allowing teenagers to explore their gender expression or to um, say that they no longer accept certain gender roles that we've imposed on them. Um, you know, so but somebody who truly has a gender identity um, issue and gender dysphoria, it is not going to be a phase and it is not going to uh, go away. And so if somebody has gender dysphoria to the degree that they want to um, have some sort of medical um, intervention, then it's true and, and it's not a phase and it's, and it's not going to go away. Can I ask you if you thought your child was going through a phase initially or not? I absolutely thought that initially. Yeah, I thought, okay, this is um, this is attention getting. This is confusion. Um, I really thought it was attention getting and, and and confusion. And you know, what else can I do to draw more attention to myself? But it became very very clear over time that this was not a phase that it was persistent that it was causing distrust to the point of having suicidal thoughts um so you know phase you know it, there's definitely a, a difference um and so i think in terms of parents shouldn't be fearful of letting their teens explore their gender in ways that are just purely social you know because that doesn't really. What's the what's the consequence of you know of that? And and so much of gender roles are so much of it is nonsense. You know anyway. You know you did a remarkable job of taking some small steps, but really important steps in accepting certain stages of the change Ava was going through. For example, when she was talking about this thing that you just said with dress change, you were okay with that. You were quite happy for her to experiment with that. However, there were other parts of her wishes that you struggled with, which was to be desired, which was to address her by her desired feminine name. She also wanted you to use female pronouns and possibly came to you with that request. But that was a step almost too much for you at that time. I wanted to touch on this just because A, that I think it highlights the fact that it's a journey, you know, a process, something that both parents and kids are having to untangle and they're riding the waves of this incredibly intense period. And they're not always in sync, parents and children. How hard was it for you as a family unit to get through this difficult time? The strain on these conversations with you and your husband, were you always on the same page? And did your other kids, you know, Ava's siblings, what was that like for them? Did they ever get impatient? Yeah. So um, Ava's siblings really felt no strain at all. I mean, they 
you know, once we told them, they accepted her right away and it really made no difference to them and it wasn't an issue for them at all. And it was quite beautiful to to see that it just didn't affect their relationships. Um, uh, for my husband and I, I mean, it was a very stressful time in our home. Uh, we We were on the same page for the most part in terms of what we should let her do or not do. I mean, we both, um, my husband was in general a little more accepting than I was um, from the beginning, but then there were things that were hard for him. For example, having her put a dress on if we were going to go out to dinner together as a family, because people, you know, at this point, she still very much otherwise looked like a boy. And so everywhere we went, people would turn around and look at us. And uh, my husband's sort of like very private and doesn't like any attention (laughs) on him. (laughs) And um, so like, so that would be, that would be difficult for him. Whereas for me, wearing, having her wear a dress wasn't an issue as much as letting go of her name was really, really difficult for me. And part of what was difficult for me with the name was that she initially wanted the name Lucy and I felt sort of no connection to that name. And I really wanted her to have a name that, you know, also was in line with her Iranian identity. Um, And so the strain with my husband and I wasn't really like a strain between the two of us in terms of disagreeing about her. It was just that both of us were going through this stressful time trying to figure out what are the right decisions for her? What should we let her do? What shouldn't we let her do? Um, And like anytime we were alone together, we would just be like, what if this, what if this, what if this, you know? And so it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time, but I also felt like we came out much stronger as a family. And we also came out much stronger as a couple because it was really probably the only time in our marriage where we truly um, had to rely on each other and were both experiencing this thing together that nobody else in our family was, you know, experiencing. Um, And so it's, you know, it it definitely also brought us together and made us stronger and made us have to rely on each other a lot more. Oh my goodness. So inspiring and like, so all consuming. I can imagine, you know, whether or not you were able to focus at work or, I don't know, decisions that you make when you see other people's children as a pediatrician, it must've just taken over your life for some time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a hard time. (laughs) Yeah. Am I right in understanding that your traditional training doesn't speak to these issues like that as a pediatrician that is not something you were taught in medical school to, to yeah so i mean i i did go to medical school quite a while ago so I've, but even now the majority of pediatric residency programs even now do not touch on gender or if they do they do so very little even in uh, you know interesting so this is amazing to see how what you've brought bringing into the hospital that you're working with and how that can affect and touch so many people that I'm sure will be so grateful for the things that you're doing. Going back to a little bit about your family strain and and the issue around your acceptance, you know, I think you were the last member of the family, as you explain in your book, to come to a place of total acceptance. And you sort of touched on the fact that even after writing the book, that you then went back 
for one more sort of stage of acceptance. Your family remained extremely supportive. Again, I find that incredibly uplifting to hear that your parents, your siblings played such a big role. I wonder if there's something else we can tell to the generation above us whose parents may not be as supportive or um, if there are any messages we can talk to with grand or how would you address this with a wider community of grandparents, aunts, uncles, people around or schools even, I don't know, are teachers open to these conversations much more than they used to be? But I, I personally think that as an Indian girl, telling your parents is one thing, but then telling your grandparents is a whole other thing. So I wondered if you might be able to shed some light on that. Yeah, I mean, I think for, I was fortunate, I was very worried about telling my parents and I was really fortunate in that as soon as I told my parents, they were uh, accepting and they said, okay, you know, I think my parents also thought that it was a phase, but they, they, I expected them to react with, oh, this is the worst thing ever. And that wasn't their reaction. And their reaction was like, okay, um, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. You know, we're here for you. Um, And I was not um, expecting that, you know, at all. And my dad, you know, right away started just reading and educating himself and, um, you know, on, on everything. You know, I think... I don't really know if I have an answer for how do we approach, you know, our grandparents or things like that. But I think what we have to, what I had to realize at a certain point was that as a parent, my number one job was to worry about my child and protect my child and that I shouldn't worry about, you know, my parents or my parents' friends or, you know, other people over worrying about my child. So I think really sort of taking the, approach of this is what's happening in our family and we are embracing our child and anybody who wants to go on this journey with us and learn great and if you're not ready for that right now then um we don't want any negativity and come back to us when you are ready um and just really sort of laying that out um, is what I would recommend to any other family going through this is just um, remember that your number one priority is to protect your child over, you know, anything else. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's such a poignant point, isn't it? It's just you, we forget the number one priority is the person in front of us who's also in a lot of pain, probably, and struggling with all sorts of issues. Uh, we start, tend to worry about other people's perceptions. Speaking of other people, if I wanted to part some advice to those in a community where their friend or family member is going through something, what are the helpful things for us to be supportive to our fellow moms or dads or people in our family members that that might be going through something like this? Because I know that's another touchy area. Some people shy away from even getting involved and saying, well, it's got nothing to do with us. That family is going through something we're not going to get, you know, and I don't know if that's the right thing, because I think you need support too. And of course, it's really personal. But are there certain do's and don'ts that you might recommend? You know, a lot of times I find that when um, someone says their child is going through a gender issue or, you know, having gender dysphoria or is transgender, people immediately um, may jump to asking uh, medical questions like, oh, so are you going to like let them transition? Are they going to have surgery one day? Like, so wait, you know, and And um, that is really a big 
don't. So don't immediately ask medical questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe speak to the person's emotions. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, there, I think there because it's sort of maybe because it's new or there's a curiosity or there isn't enough, you know, education. So, so a big don't is don't immediately ask uh, about, you know, medical questions or whether or not their person's child might have surgery one day or, you know, and, and the big do is just, you know, if somebody tells you something like this, you know, just say, oh, if there's what, how can I support you? And let me know if there's any way that I can support you and just see, immediately start using the appropriate uh, name and pronouns for their child as best as you can. You know, obviously some, we might always, you know, slip up and make mistakes um, and see really look at the kid and ask how the child is doing and how the parent is doing and don't ask questions that are medical or not really any of your business yeah so helpful that's really helpful i wanted to touch a little bit again about something you talk about and i think is so pertinent with young girls particularly but this idea and women but this idea of body image and the idea of loving your own body you said that you spent a lot of time in your younger years trying to alter or change things physically so you could fit in or feel better about yourself in some way but then it was your daughter that changed that for you this journey that she was on made you look at things and change your outlook. Can you guide us or, you know, help us understand how, when many of us are still struggling with our own physical images and explain how we can embrace who we are as we are, especially young girls who are trying to alter this for themselves? You know, I started dieting when I was 11 or 12 for, for really no reason and um, was, you know, off and on, on a you know, every diet for my, sort of my entire life and always just fighting like five, 10 pounds. That is just such a, you know, waste of uh, time and energy. And, you know, once my daughter uh, came out as trans and, you know, she wanted to have you know, she wanted to have thighs that were a little bit wider because that we, that's how we expect women's thighs to be. She wanted, you know, wider hips, you know, she, she would, you know, hug me and say, you know, mom, like, you know, you're so soft. And these all, these were all things that defined being a woman to her. And I realized, wow, I've spent all this time. I mean, my body, um, I have a curvy body because that's how women's bodies are supposed to be. And I love being a woman, but I've fought my curves and fought being a woman, you know, for, for, for all these years. And um, imagine what it would be to have a body that didn't match my gender identity and, and how distressing that would be. And I should just be so, so grateful that my body matches my gender identity. And so it really put things in a new perspective for me and made me completely, um, you know, it made me completely put away, just stop worrying about my body and accept it. And, you know, what makes us beautiful is having differences, you know, in our skin color, in our height and our body type. I mean, it would be so boring if we were all exactly the same. But I think the the problem is we really just need all different bodies, faces, skin colors. You know, we, we see that all represented to be able to see ourselves and, you know, as beautiful and appreciate it. You know, even 
you know, even as recently as when um, Kamala Harris became vice president, you know, I remember the day that it was definite, I walked into my bathroom and I looked in my mirror and for the first time I saw my face differently than I've seen it for 47 years. And, you know, imagine what that's like for a 10-year-old girl or a 12-year-old girl, you know? So um, so I think we just, we need um, to appreciate and see diversity to be able to, you know, to be able to have all people appreciate themselves um, a- as they are. Yeah, what an amazing message to instill upon all folks. But yeah, particularly young girls out there. Um, who are struggling so much with societal pressures that they keep putting on themselves. I think unnecessary pressures. I think, and you say the same thing that you did that from a young age. I pro- I'm guilty of the same thing. And like you say, you're just expending energy on things that just don't matter in life, do they? They just, it's not important. What's important is what's in front of you and, and being the person that you are. It's so important. Um, so thank you for that, sharing that lovely insight. I wanted to, talk a little bit more about this acceptance about truth and being a truth teller and speaking your truth. Your, there was a line in your book that talked about being omitting things out of not telling the whole truth possibly, but omission by its mere fact is a lie and that you are living your truth today. Today is the place you know, you've come to where you are actually living your real truth. It's such a massive learning and an awakening call and something that really resonated for me because Ava was such a great example of somebody who just didn't want to live with something that wasn't her truth and she persevered. In your own words, you know, how did you, you say that you struggled with this because you felt that you were a truth teller as well, but you then had this real internal conflict when you were looking at your daughter, but being able to tell yourself that the truth about her gender was such a challenge and you express it in such a raw, authentic, touching way in the book. I mean, I felt every single word that you wrote. I really did have tears rolling down my eyes as I read it. And I wondered if you could shed some more information on that for us, how how, that internal battle that you had. Yeah. So I think, so this was when, um, you know, she had come out as, as a girl and I was still having a hard time accepting who she was telling me who she was. And, um, and so I was thinking that maybe uh, I was sort of trying to almost bargain and negotiate with her and, and, and telling her, you know, maybe instead of being a girl, you could just like be non-binary and, but not change anything. And just, you know, um, and because I wanted to, hold on to the boy part of her. You know, I was still in this part where I wanted to hold on to the boy part of her. And she said, well, but saying that I'm uh, non-binary would be an omission of the fact that I'm actually a girl. And and, and then and an omission is a lie. And it was just, I, I was struck by how powerful um, that was. And that, you know, I, here I am as a parent trying to convince my child to live her life as a lie rather than when, when she's actually just, you know, owning who she is. Um, and so when she said that it was so powerful and right then I just, I, after that, I never again tried to 
you know, sort of negotiate and bargain with her about her gender. And I said, okay, you know, you, you are a girl. Um, and it was a big turning point for me. And then, you know, seeing her own who she is at such a young age um, has really helped me own who I am finally, you know, in, um, in my late 40s. And, you know, realizing that I can be unapologetically myself, I can tell the whole truth uh, about who I am. And some people may like it and some people may not, you know, like it. And that I don't really need to prove my worth to, to anyone. But it's liberating, isn't it? And you coming to a place where you can be your whole self unapologetically, as you say. And I think, you know, that this journey is so personal and I know you've done it in hopes to help and become an ambassador for other transgender teens and adults, but, and it's really brave of the way you've shared your whole self. I admire that in your writing so much because you didn't just share all the actions that you took as a family, but you also shared your errors or the regrets. And I put these words in quotes again, because, you know, handling a, a situation like yours can't be easy, especially if it's unknown territory. And I have so much empathy for the way you've self-evaluated or reflected on all of this. How did you, what were the sort of biggest regrets that you talk about? Yeah, I think my biggest regrets were really that, you know, when um, Ava came to me, just when she came to us initially and told us really the biggest thing that she had to tell us, um, that I didn't listen with an open mind and that I, you know, immediately shut her down and said, there's no way that you can be transgender. And, you know, I know you better than you know yourself. And, and this just isn't possible. Um, and, you know, it, it's such a difficult thing for someone to come out to somebody that, you know, they love and tell them the truth of what is going on with them. And I wasn't ready to hear it. And what I should have done is at the minimum said, okay, this is, I wasn't expecting this. This is a lot. Can you, you know, give me some time? Um, even if I wasn't going to be accepting right away, um, then to say, no, you know, this isn't possible and you don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I think really not listening to her and not having an open mind about it, um, and which caused me to have some delay in getting her care. Um, I think that's really been my biggest regret. And, you know, I often thought about other people more than I thought about her. You know, how was this going to affect other people? Um, how is this going to affect her brother who's in the same school with her? You know, how how is this going to affect my parents? You know, <laughs> you know, just was thinking about other people more than I was thinking about the person who's actually going through such a difficult time. Sure. And did you find that she became more reclusive or withdrawn or did she come to you less with things after that? How did that change your relationship with her? 
Yeah, she definitely became more reclusive and and withdrawal for for quite a while. Um, I mean, I did find her a therapist right away to help her sort it out. But my thought was like, okay, the therapist is going to help sort her sort it out to tell her, no, you're not actually trans, which is not what happened. But um, but she definitely became more um, reclusive with me, and it took um, you know there was a six to nine month period where our relationship was really not good. And then we slowly had to build it back up. Wow. You just touched on a really important point there that you, it wasn't easy for you to find the right therapist. You you switched around a little bit, didn't you? And it wasn't a straightforward process. Do you think on some level you were looking for someone else professional to validate your fears and help you dismiss Ava's concerns as something that was definitely real? Yeah, that that's really absolutely what I was doing. You know, I started her out with one therapist. I was hoping that the first therapist would spend like a session or two with her and say, yeah, she, you know, you're not trans, you're confused. Like, let's figure out why you're confused. Um, and that first therapist said, well, there, there may be some truth to what, you know, <laughs> your child is saying. I think we need to take this day by day. And I said, oh, nope, I, that's not what I want to hear. So I switched her to another therapist and Therapist number two, you know, said the same thing. And, you know, we finally landed with therapist number four before I actually finally listened. And and the reason I finally listened by the time we got to therapist number four was because I really had no choice but to start listening at that point because her mental state was deteriorating. She was having suicidal, you know, thoughts again. And it was also around when I finally had joined um, the support group and met other families. And so the combination of Ava deteriorating and then me meeting with this support group um, and feeling like I'm not alone is what made me finally stay with therapist number four and, and, and listen to what he had to say. And, um, you know, and now he, uh, it's been three years and she's she's still in touch with therapist number oh, four. <laughs> is she? That's wonderful. So to start, she came out at 13 and a half. And to get to a place where you were ready to let her see her through this journey, how many, how long was that process for you as a family? I think it took about, um, there was like six months of complete denial, anger, grief for me. And then like a three month in in between period, I think around eight, nine months is when I really started to actually turn around. And there was a phase where I didn't see her as my son or daughter, but just as my child, and then moved on to a time where I really, truly started to see her as my daughter. Oh, beautiful. But, you know, again, six to nine months is really not, I guess, in a parent's view, isn't a huge amount of time. But I guess in that child's life, each day must seem so long. You know, that's what a lot of the feedback has been. Oh, you know, you are so hard on yourself. I mean, any parent would take him six to nine months to um, start to accept something like this. And, you know, I would say, but the six to nine months may not seem that long, but for a teenager who is actually in the peak of going through puberty, um, every day that you're in denial is another day that their body is either masculinizing or feminizing in the wrong direction. Um, it is a that it's a rapid time of change for for the teen. So it is a huge amount of time for for a teen, you know. Yeah. So taking things, you know, and controlling them the best you can. We're human at the end of the day, and we do make errors. I do. I also felt possibly that you were 
sense of regret and, you know, how hard you were on yourself as a mom came through. I think that it's important to really champion you and all your work in this, because I know your daughter went through a huge change, but so did you. And that's important because the other really great lesson that I got from your story was this idea of parenting from a place of fear versus versus parenting from a place of love. It really hit home a fear of how Ava would be viewed by others, which we've touched on how much she might be bullied at school or elsewhere when she's out because teens go out when we're not in COVID times, obviously, how your family might react, how interactions in her day-to-day life would change. Yet what the really beautiful part of all of this is that when you did face your fears and you began sharing snippets of Ava's true identity, that you were almost surprised that in your own mind that this fear that built up was actually not needed because over the response was overwhelmingly positive and supportive from most of those around you. Uh, which Would you say that's true? Is that fair? And, and I wonder if so, where do we build this fear from? Like, how do we free ourselves from it? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, um, how to free yourself from this fear. But, you know, what I try to remember and practice is that most fear-based parenting is based on external factors and not um, internal factors. Um, so when we're, you know, if I'm afraid, um, you know, of Ava getting bullied, it's, you know, it's uh, if she wears a dress, it's because I'm afraid of, you know, what's the outside world reaction, you know, going to be to her wearing a dress. Um but it doesn't come from an internal uh, place of, you know, do I feel that like there's anything wrong with my child wearing a dress kind of thing. And so I think, so that's sort of what I've had to practice is, you know, if I'm afraid about something, say, okay, where where's my fear coming from? Is my fear based on, you know, external factors? Um, and the external world, which, which is very real. I understand, you know, it's there, but, um, or is it, is it coming from what I truly believe, you know, in my, in my heart? Um, and, and sort of using that, you know, distinction um, when I'm trying to make decisions for her um, has been really, really helpful. So, you know, for example, if I'm worried about her starting medical transition, it's like, my worry is, you know, what if she, you know, changes her mind, let's say, and then that's sort of a fear-based approach and the love-based approach is what's the child in front of me today telling me that she needs from me and in my heart, do I see that that's what she needs right now? I think, you know, that it's almost like a practice, you know, like, like a yoga practice, you know? Yeah. So you do something, asking those questions and reflecting, yeah, is important. It's, it is. You touched on something about this whole kind of worry about future and things that haven't happened yet. They're events that haven't occurred. They're just happening in our brain. So whether or not she might, is the correct term detransition? Uh, you know, would she, how would I deal with that if, if she's started medical treatment now? I think these are such important questions because nobody can predict the future. Now, none of us have that power. None of us have that superpower. So looking at each day in the moment and being present for the child is a massive lesson, I think, in parenting or educating or anything, I think is a really important. I wanted to ask you what her experience was like in, 
I know it'll be different in every county, in every country, but for school, for her personally, as a teen in school, in sports, in extracurricular activities, was she accepted, supported in the same way that you, she was with her community of family? Yeah. I, you know, for, for the most part in school, she was accepted. Uh, there were a few people here and there that would occasionally make comments to her, like, what's wrong with you? What are you wearing? You know, th that sort of thing. But for the most part in school, she was accepted. Um, the school made some accommodations for her. Uh, she's not a sporty kid, so we never really had the issue of her wanting to be on a girls sports team or not, um, which is really a big debate right now. If you um, if you uh, follow the news and uh, in in the U.S. Um, in terms of there's, you know, a lot of states that don't want to uh, let trans kids uh, be on sports team that matches their gender identity. And it's a lot, it's a lot of uh, really sad. Uh, but um, she did, she was in choir and she, when she started this process, you know, she was in men's choir um, and then um you know, the next year we got her into a co-ed choir, but even, you know, even in men's choir, you know, towards the end of it, she didn't want to wear the required men's uniform anymore. So we had to, you know, talk with a choir teacher about trying to make some accommodations for her. Um, there was an incident with like a school field trip where um, she wanted to room with the girls and um, the school decided not to let her you know, that it wasn't a good time for her to room with the girls. Um, and that was a really sad incident for me um, where she went on a field trip with choir and they put all the boys in one room and all the girls in one room and gave her a room by herself, which is really very sad if you think about it. Um, but Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, she was the first out trans person in her school. So the school... Um, has you know learned a lot because of her that's the good thing is they've learned a lot because of her um she has definitely uh paved the way for trans kids who come after her and there have been multiple who have come out after her um so um you know there there was some hiccups in school i would say there there wasn't the bullying that i was worried about but there were definitely a few hiccups of course and i wondered because there was one you know this was an issue definitely when i was teaching in london about changing rooms and bathrooms and having gender neutral changing spaces. Was that something that she encountered as well? Or is what, what can schools do? Maybe that's the better question to ask. What, what should schools be doing? Yeah. So schools should be providing gender neutral, you know, ba bathrooms. I mean, th the school had one um, gender neutral, neutral bathroom was a single bathroom. Um, she, her high school is very, very large. So having just one, um, there were, you know, the times where she couldn't make it like all the way across the high school campus to use the one gender neutral bath, you know, bathroom. So, you know, if you have a large high school and a large campus and you have three minutes in between classes, you need to provide more than one gender neutral bathroom, just like you have more than one girls room and boys room. Um, the school did um, um, provide her a place to, she went and asked for a private place to change in PE. And so they found a locker room that wasn't used, being used by the dance team um, and provided her with that. So they should have these accommodations, you know, in advance, basically, you know, a, you know, like a place to change, you know, a place to, um, 
you know, sufficient bathrooms, not just one, um, making anything uh, that you can make gender neutral, gender neutral. Um, you know, for example, you don't, you know, there are certain things that don't need to have a boys team and a girls team, <laughs> you know, and they, you know, and, and you can just have one team, you know? Um, so, and I think, um, you know, it's not just high schools, like even in elementary schools, there's so much we can do in elementary schools, you know, and a lot, a lot of times teachers in elementary schools will be like, okay, you know, so we're going to do half the kids are going to do this and half the kids are going to do this, but you know, they'll divide them by boys and girls. And, you know, they might, they, you know, they might say, okay, like girls go to the water fountain first while the boys put away, you know, their jackets and then, you know, switch. Um, well, don't do that. Just say, you know, this half of the room, go to the water fountain first, and this half of the room, you know, go get your jackets. And, you know, because for, for that trans or gender diverse, you know, child in that classroom, you know, you're, you're just very early on, we're telling them that, you know, there's, that the world is binary, and you got to pick which one you're in. Which isn't an easy, yeah, it's not easy when they're trying to work it out for themselves in the first place. These are really helpful tips. Thank you again. I think speaking about tips on that point, I wondered if you could help us, especially those that are of us that are more ignorant, about how we can be more informed. I know in your book you use a lot of uh, terminology that is the correct terminology to use around uh, ch kids that are transitioning. Are there, can you guide us on what is the right way and when? when we should be using the right pronouns and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of just names and pronouns, um, really right now, you know, there was a while where people would say, what's your preferred name or your um, asserted name or your preferred pronoun or your asserted pronoun. Um, and so really right now we try to drop the terminology of preferred or asserted. You know, I don't ask you what your preferred pronoun is. I just say, you know, what's your pronouns? And let's say you say, you know, your pronouns are she, her, or they, them, or, you know, so, you know, so taking out, because it's not what you prefer, it's what actually, you know, is. Um, so, you know, also not saying like, you know, so it's, so using simple language, like what's your name, what are your pronouns, <laughs> rather than your real name, your legal name, your preferred, you know, just what, what's your name, what's your, what are your pronouns, you know, um, is I think uh, in terms of things like just getting up to date on what is going on with in the trans community and uh, trans rights. I mean, in, in the U.S., the National Center for Transgender Equality is a great um, resource. I mean, there's so many great online resources um, that people can, can look up to get more um, information if they want. But I really think the, the simplest thing you can do is... Um, just somebody ask somebody their name and pronouns and and use and honor those <laughs> what is it that you use to talk about the gender that you're born with i think it is it cis and then and the other word i wanted to ask you was what the word passing means yeah right so so cisgender versus transgender so cisgender just means somebody who um their genitalia matches um their gender identity you know so so for example i was born with vagina and I identify as female. So I'm cisgender and, uh, you know, a transgender person is somebody whose genitalia doesn't match, you know, with their identity. Um, 
So, um, so that's the differentiation sort of between cisgender and, and, and transgender. Um, the passing is a term um, for when somebody who is transgender is um, presenting in a way that people think that they are cisgender. In, in other words, they're passing as a cisgender person. So, so somebody who, you know, when you look at them, you, for, you know, you are not suspecting that, that, that they are transgender. Um, so, so passing is sort of one of these things that um, there may be some trans people who sort of um, quote unquote, aspire to pass in this world as, as cisgender, as in they just want to be able to walk through this world um, and not have people suspect that they might be, you know, transgender. Um, and then, and then there are people who um, don't quote unquote aspire to pass, and you know, are just. I mean, I can't speak for trans people, but you know, come to come to this place of just, you know, accepting it that this is how I am and how I present to the world and somebody can see me how they, you know, want, right? So passing is also a term that um has been used before um in talking about, you know, for example, black people who um look so quote unquote white that people don't know they're they're black. It's also been used, you know, um in that context. Interesting. Okay. That's really useful. Again, I'm really touched and I know I've taken up so much of your time. You, you really do have a beautiful family. I, I do also follow Ava, your daughter on Instagram, and I'm so taken by her charisma, the charm in which she shines through in those photographs. It's clearly you can see the journey that she's made. Some of the photos that you've got in your actual book about some of the times where she was more forlorn or a bit not herself, clearly, um, makes me think that it, her story is so empowering for other teens who might like to reach out or even parents who might like more information should they should I direct them towards your website is that I can I'm leaving all the information on on my show notes but your book found in translation is a great place to start for anyone listening to this but I wonder if there was anything else that you'd like to direct to people towards yeah, my, my website, pariahisuri.com, has links to um, articles and essays that I've written in New York Times and LA Times and other places, um, and um, just has links to my social media and Instagram and Twitter. Um, there's a contact us tab on there where people are welcome to email me with questions, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. And I will link that in the show notes for everybody. And I will also link your book because I think it's a wonderful, beautiful story for, for everyone to read. I just want to end on this wonderful quote that I got from Ava, which is, you have to be scared first to have courage. Otherwise, it wouldn't be courage. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd just be doing shit. It's fantastic. <laughs> I adore her and I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, her story with all of those out there that may draw so much from it. I certainly have. And Paria, I really am grateful. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Well, I've just been so moved and touched and learned so much from all the fabulous insights that Paria has so bravely shared with all of us today. I'm so grateful that I was able to have this conversation and bring it to all of you. I hope you will have also found some of her takeaways as insightful as I have. 
And I would do urge you to share the podcast with others because these conversations are so important to be have had with our youngsters as well as with each other. So please do rate, review, subscribe and you know we look forward to having you join us in series three that was a wrap from us for now we look forward to having you join us again when we bring out the next set of conversations until then thank you so much from all of us at elevate